Hello. Welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex. I work for the Old Fire Station Arts Centre in Oxford, and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier Award winner Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises, answers to questions from listeners, and our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. Mike, what are we covering in the course this week? Well, we haven't really done anything on character. Partly that's because it's not normally the way that I come in to plays. So we're going to do a few exercises on that. This week at the Old Fire Station, we have Oxford Pride. Oxford is one of the local drag companies and they're brilliant. And then we have on Saturday, the 8th of July, John Robertson's The Dark Room. Have you ever experienced this? No, I saw the poster and I was intrigued. It's a kind of cult comedy institution. Okay. John Robertson is a comedian and he has created a real life version of those text video games. No way. Where you awake to find yourself in a dark room. What do you do? I love those. Well, you should come and experience the dark room. I will. And I also wanted to just give a shout out to something that we're starting here at the Old Fire Station this week. As we're recording this, we're going to launch a £1 ticket scheme. So there will be... Three £1 tickets available for every show at the Old Fire Station for six months as a trial. We're kind of inspired by the Ticket Bank in London and various other initiatives for cheap tickets. And so we've decided to give it a go. And is that on a first come, first serve basis? Yeah. So we're, we're putting our faith in the public to only buy them if they need them. I see. Great. So they're there if you want them. But if you can afford to pay a normal price for a ticket, then you'd then rather that they did that. Yes. Good. Brilliant. Okay. So now coming up, we've got Mike interviewing Katie Posner, the Joint Artistic Director of Payne's Plough Theatre Company. I'm very pleased that we have a second guest on our podcast who is one half of the team running the amazing new writing theatre company, Payne's Plough, who I worked with quite a long time ago now, but were very important to me. And our guest is Katie Posner. Hello, Katie. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a complete pleasure and Payne's Plough were very important to me because when it was run by George Perrin and James Grieve, they were pretty much the first people to give me any kind of commission. So Payne's Plough means a lot to me. But one massive reason that we're doing the podcast and why I was really keen to talk to you is that when I was starting as a writer, I was in Oxford. So you'd think it would have a, a theatre and a new writing culture, but it didn't really. And I didn't really have anywhere to reach out to. And at the time, I just wrote plays and sent them off to new writing theatres. But it felt like sending them out into the ether. I didn't really have any contacts. And that was one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast, is the idea that you can do a course in new writing wherever you are in the country and that there might be people in their schools or bedrooms or wherever that don't have networks or communities that are into theatre, but are interested in writing a play. And in a way, I always associate Payne's Plough with that kind of ethos of going all the way around the country and reaching out and finding writers. And you've just launched a new project called Tour the Writer, which feels like it totally speaks to that. So I wonder if we could start by you talking a bit about Payne's Plough and what it is and how you see it and where it is now, because obviously I know it from quite a long time ago. And then perhaps we'll go on and talk about Tour the Writer as well. Yeah, firstly, I love the journey and I love that you have a special relationship and it's really nice to hear that. And we hear that quite a lot from like past alumni of the organisation. So Painspell, we're a national new writing company. We took over in 2019, six months later, COVID happened. And through that period of time, we just thought 
the least we can do is still have our commitments to our writers that are central and key and are at the heart of every single thing we do as an organisation. And in that, it was actually a really amazing opportunity in the way that you're saying that suddenly we were all online. We all had that further reach access because we weren't trying to get to the next city to do the next thing. And one of the key things we did during that time is we commissioned over 60 writers. We developed the Come to Where I'm From project, which is about writing where you're from, and made that into a project called Come to Where I Am. And it was an opportunity for writers to have some money to write a commission about what was happening to them at that point and wherever they were in that. We also worked with international writers on that project. And one of the things we talked a lot about was that how, if you're writing a play in a town that has no access to literary department and you send your play to Painstar or Insert Other Theatre Company, who is reading your play? Who are those people saying yes or no? And what does that actually mean? So we did an intervention, which we said was our open submissions programme. And we committed to meet every single writer that had sent their play wow. to us. What we didn't quite factor in was how many writers would do that. And so we had 750 writers wow. send them in. And we carried on with that commitment. And we met every single one of them. At the same time, we were in the first year of the Women's Prize for Playwriting. We had 900 scripts to get through. We're a team of seven. It was a wild, mad process. And with Open Submissions Window, we basically met every single writer through lots of people you know, in our team and other freelancers. And we'd have conversations with them. It wasn't whether your play's going to be our next commission or not, but it was, who are you? What are you about? How can we connect with you? Anyway, it was a long process, as you can imagine, and it definitely went on for too long. But what it did is it ignited this kind of passion and energy, which was how do we run a company that has its commitment to producing and touring the best new writing across the country? But what does it truly do with its development? And how is that a national project for us? And how can we have more authentic and more meaningful relationships with writers? And what does that actually look like? So all these kind of thoughts are percolating. And as we were approaching our new business model, really centralised the organisation into two pillars, which was producing and touring and our writers. And Tour the Writer came to fruition. And we thought, actually, the work now is looking at where is the need for Payne's Plan? What does that look like across the country? So we did a big like recce of like, where is the literary department and where is that sort of oversaturation? Let's not go there. Let's kind of focus in on regions that have a passion and a love and want to do more new writing, but don't have that infrastructure and use that as our starting point. So we are now working with seven strategic partners across the country and our Tour the Writer programme is basically a three-year development programme. In the first year, it's about open access, try and like work with the venues to meet writers that may or may not call themselves a writer, may not want to engage with the venue for many reasons, but maybe Payne's Cloud being part of that, that was a different conversation. But go out there and actively find writers and take them on a kind of open access course. So we've run these writer labs in all these different places. Our next thing is we're doing, which you're very kindly part of, but we're going to do a big online masterclass and there's other touch points through the year. And the idea is to meet writers and get to know people and find opportunities for them. And then as we move into year two, it is about focusing on the slightly smaller group of writers 
and giving them that extended dramaturgical support and helping them write their first play or perhaps looking at writers that cross form and being part of their journey. And then in year three, it's taking those writers and presenting their work. And it might not all look like fully finished plays. It's like table reads and things like that. But the idea of year three being a tour of the writer is those writers to have the opportunity to share their work across these other regions and Painspell being that intervention for that. So we're just at the start of the journey. I'm sure, you know, it's going to evolve as we grow. I think we often have the conversation, which is what happens if you, you know, localise in a certain number of areas? How do you still remain national? What does that actually mean? We've obviously got the Women's Prize of Playwriting, which is our flagship prize. And that's obviously about levelling up gender inequality and with a main stage perspective. And then really just looking at like where work intersects with that and just trying to make the business speak more to itself or like with the produced work and, and the writers. But always coming back to like where are there more opportunities that like we also have extended bursary time for writer to spend more time at Pace Plow, a fellowship writer, which we've just appointed. It sounds brilliant. One of the things that feels very heartening and exciting to me is that I feel like theatre and theatre writing playwrights and then theatre people and companies can often seem, if you're not, Mm. if you don't know anyone from that world, you don't have any connections, they can seem very both talking to themselves in a language that normal people don't talk in. And they all seem to know each other, but yet you can't get in on them. I think we were talking a few weeks ago about the fact that when I wanted to send a play off, I had about an option of 10 to 15 theatres, all of which had open submissions the entire year round. Unusually in theatre, that was lots of open doors to anybody to send something in, which I'm not sure is the case anymore. Mm. No, but what feels really great about what you're saying is that it feels like you're actively trying to remove those barriers to open the door as wide as possible. Mm. I was interested in some of the stuff you sent me to do with the panel discussion that we're going to do about encouraging writers who've written in other forms or people who wouldn't necessarily call themselves a playwright or working in theatre already. Can you talk a bit about that? Because, you know, for anyone who might be listening, you're thinking, is this for me? Or I don't feel like I know anyone in theatre. It's interesting you, you're saying that because I actually had a writer. So we, as part of Tour the Writer, we have writers drop-in sessions like anyone in in any of the regions that we're working with and all the partners are involved. So you can book in and and have a chat with me or one of the other artistic directors or producers. And actually one of the conversations today was somebody saying, I've written this play and I've written that play, I've had this, but I don't know who to talk to and how to go about doing that. Yeah, this is really exciting, this part, because we talk, obviously, we say writers, and that's really important, but we do also say storytellers. And artists and writers that perform are amazing storytellers, right? And so suddenly putting themselves in the context of being a theatre writer can be really alienating. There can be so many stigmas and barriers around that. So we wanted to use these labs to explode open. What does that mean? So you can be an amazing spoken word artist and come in and write like a three-part structured play. Why not? If that's where you want to get to, but also you can use your brilliant way of telling stories and be the artist and the writer that you are, but still go through this process and still go on a journey and create something amazing. And I think right now, there is a real like excitement and a diet for artists that can tell stories. It doesn't have to look like one thing. And I guess the point of the talk and the, the masterclass that you're part of is that we specifically spoken and chosen writers that 
all do it in their own unique, beautiful, individual way. And I guess that is the point of this, that you get to be you and the way that you work and we help you on your specific journey rather than say, this is how you write a play. Because I think that that's just more of um, an interesting perspective that we have of what a future of plays can look like. Yeah, that's brilliant. This is probably a question that we're going to talk about in the panel discussion, but I think it's quite a tricky question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is when one wants plays to be as open in form as possible, Mm -hmm. and you want writers from as many different backgrounds and traditions and ways in as possible, and you want to blow the doors open on what a play can be, you've got all of that going on. A writer, which of course they're going to ask for a producing theatre company, is to say, what are you looking for? What's the criteria that you have when you read a play that you go, well, this one we're going to pursue and this one we're not? Do you know what I mean? Because when plays were more rigid, people used to talk 30 years ago about a Royal Court play. And they would sort of know that it was vaguely socially realist and, you know, it was like class-based and, or you know, it had a sort of criteria. So at least... Even if you said, I'm never going to write a play like that, you knew what that was, or you knew what the sort of Noel Cowardy sort of play was. Mm-hmm. You might know a, a sort of Sarah Kane poetry, this deconstructed post-dramatic play. Do you have a sense of, of what you're looking for? Do you have a criteria? And it's the golden question, isn't it? Loosely say, oh, we're really excited by plays that politically and socially comment on the world we live in. But genuinely, that could be anything, couldn't it? It could be like a nana in Blackpool singing a song outside her house on a street corner. And that's the most political play we could see. I guess it's interesting when I think both myself and Charlotte are very audience driven. We do really think about audiences, who's it for and why and what's it trying to do. I don't know, really. I think like what if I say that on a personal level, I guess I like stuff that feels like it gets in your body and bones. I'm really like I use art for my own form of activism. Like I'm really attracted to like plays that explode open politics. Perhaps I don't know enough about. And then I just love getting lost in that. Yeah. Yeah. we're, We're very writer driven. So we say one of our things was to maybe explode open that thought a bit more and say, actually, I don't think we have a category. Maybe that's wrong. But I think where we get excited is plays that get in your body and your bones. I think what you're saying both makes complete sense to me and I think is really good in that you're saying, you know, I think there used to be a a situation where different new writing companies would maybe have different styles of play that they were looking for. And if you go, that's my play style, yeah. Yeah, and that's not what you're doing. What you're doing is more going, we're going to just listen to what writers produce. And when it's particularly authentic or distinctive we'll sort of know it and we'll want to encourage whatever they are rather than a sort of top-down approach of we know what a good play is yeah yeah I think so definitely and I guess we're really known for the roundabouts so quite often writers will talk to us and say ah I can really I've got this idea and I think it would be really great in the roundabout and we also obviously we are known for the roundabout as one part of what we do but you know we do also take plays into other places so we don't always want to limit them to just say oh it's you know for a smaller cast or and we're also pushing what the roundabout plays can look like historically they were all about the words and they are still about the words but the last couple of shows that I've been doing there are definitely about pushing boundaries and putting in set and the magic realism and trying to play metaphor in a slightly different way and playing around a little bit yeah and we should say that the roundabout is the bespoke playwright Payne's plow auditorium why don't you describe it 
it's a big yellow tent and it's very cool and it's got really cool like spaceship style lighting panels and it's 167 seats and it's in the round it's just this really brilliant tent that sort of asks you to be a very active audience participant we mainly pop up in Edinburgh previously we've taken roundabout on the road and we're not going to do that now we're going to put it into roundabout and then we're going to see where we eventually choose our future home because we're going to look at moving out of London and thinking about using roundabout in a different way but it is I guess what we're most known for during James and George's tenure and now sort of into ours. Brilliant. I'm going to ask one more if that's all right, which is just whether you have anything that you would like to say. We've been talking a lot about the new theatre writing culture in general, about where it is post-COVID and the opportunities that are there, the challenges at the moment. And I wondered whether you had anything, just your thoughts on where playwriting is right now and what those opportunities are and what audiences are looking for. One thing that struck me from what you said at the beginning is you're getting 600, 900 entries to a competition is incredible and really sort of galvanizes me that that many people are writing plays. It's incredible. With your perspective, I'd love to hear where you feel things are more broadly. I think it feels like we are in a really exciting time in terms of more writers putting themselves out there. I guess where I think about writers and my concerns for them is as we are in a place of potential fear of saying something that could be damning on stage, I always come back to what is the right infrastructure around the writer and how do we allow the beauty of creativity and everything that they want to say and how we're going on a real specific dramaturgical journey with that person and making sure that we're challenging that. So I think it is about going the future of playwriting could be compromised if writers don't have that. I think audiences, if you look at it on one ground level, we would all just go, oh, audiences just want a musical or they want to feel something so immersive, something experiential. And I totally get that. But I still can't move away from when you see an absolutely amazing play and you come out and you're tingling and you're like, oh my gosh, or you just want to go away and like, learn something or talk about it you know you've just been posed this like massive big moral knotty question and you're like I don't know how I feel and it explodes something out for you and I know I say this is a massive theatre lover and I love theatre and I love plays and I love all of this but when you see an audience feel that it's it's really special I think where there are less opportunities where theatres are finding it harder to produce where new writing You know, we're looking across London and going, where are those new writing organisations? They're getting smaller and smaller. Certainly regionally, I'm worried (laughs) for the future of new writing and I'll like be a passionate advocate for that. And I imagine as a writer, looking at that, going, where do I fit and how, how does it work for me? And like any arts profession, you know, how are you building a sustainable career? It's really challenging and particularly where there's lots of people who also want to do that. It always comes down to money, doesn't it? And I hope in a golden land that everything changes, that there is more money to support people better. It's joyful when you have a conversation with the writer, like just thinking about the person I spoke to earlier, he's telling me this amazing idea. It was brilliant. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so great. And he's done all this historical investigation and it's joyful. We always need new stories. And to quote Simon Stevens, because he is the oracle and everyone loves him, as well as you, clearly. Yes. He says, like, we need new stories to tell 
us about ourselves and learn about ourselves and and I guess on a personal level I, I often think about we have to understand the past in order to define our future and stories are the best way to do that so I can't imagine a world where we're never not need them it's just about coming back to how there's an infrastructure to support people and what that looks like brilliant that's really great if people want to get involved with tour the writer yeah so at the moment we're working in north devon in plymouth in coventry and colchester in bradford at theater by the lake and peterborough as our seven like key regions we will start to expand that and grow that but that's where it's at, at the moment outside of that yeah definitely connecting us via pains power and our newsletters and find out what else is going on and how they can connect with us and on socials brilliant and if someone's written a play when do they send it to you and how do they send it to you well, if you're in those regions, then you would be coming hopefully on this journey of Tour the Writer. And that's where, you know, you're getting to connect with us and do that work. Outside of that, we have our unsolicited script windows. And then obviously, we've got the Women's Prize for Playwriting as well, where we just would encourage everyone to come through that. Thank you so much for this. It's brilliant. I really appreciate it. And good luck with, with everything. Thanks, Mike. So let's talk about what we're covering in the course this week. I realised that we hadn't really talked about character. And I think that's partly because I find that character tends to come from all the other things. So I end up thinking about the situation or what that person does or what their role is or what they want. And for me, often character comes from desire and action. And then aspects of character in inverted commas sort of develop as I write or through the way in which they talk or the way they use language. So I discover who the character is literally writing the scenes of the play. But I know other people absolutely start with character before they come up with story or theme or anything. It's all about exploring who a person is. So I thought in a rare sidebar to my normal rule which is we're only going to do exercises that I do these are exercises that I haven't used to create a play myself but when I did them as part of workshops they really did inspire me to want to write more generally and they sort of did certainly inform and continue to inform the way I think about character and how character can live in a play live in their speech and their action and the randomness of their life so specifically we're going to do quite a bit of automatic writing i think by which i mean you just write you don't think about it you just keep writing and a lot of these are lists actually or answering questions so if you're going to do this at home have your pen and paper ready so one of the first things we're going to do is just write 50 things about your character go you're just going to write down 50 aspects they own 12 pairs of shoes they are this tall this happened to them when they were four you know 50 facts about the character and we're going to do that in the workshop and just sit and wait until everyone's written 50 because it doesn't take that long, actually. You think 50 is a lot. It's not going to take that long. Another thing you can do is a memory for every year of their life. So if they're 25, we want a bit like we did when we drew around people and we wrote a memory for each year of life for ourselves. You can do that with the character. And what's amazing about that is you, what I tend to find with that when I've done it is that you end up finding little mysteries about the character or how two things fit together. Or why are you choosing that memory when they were five? And it starts to actually inform their psychology, which is the thing that really is going to charge them in the play. And I think we've talked about this exercise before, but they happen to write a paragraph, what they think of you. If they met you, the writer, what would they think of you? Would they like you? Would they think you were ridiculous? And there's something in that about the relationship between you and your character, both to separate you and realize that you're writing someone who's different from you, but also 
I think that can reveal things about their attitude towards class and identity and politics and other people more generally. What does this character lie about in their life? What do they always lie about? What do they hate about themselves? What do they love about themselves? What do you know as a writer about them that they don't know about themselves? That's quite a good one because that is connected to their need. What do they need? What's going on with them that they're not aware of? I've often thought that in life, this is slightly a sidebar thought, but it is relevant. I've often thought there should be a service you could go where you would meet someone, a bit like a therapist for an hour, but their only job is to tell you the objective truth about yourself, about how you come across What's the thing that no one's telling you? All the objective, that'd be quite useful, wouldn't it? I can imagine nothing worse. Well, maybe in the moment, but it might serve you well to know that stuff in the long term. So one of the things that you get on stage is dramatic irony when the audience all knows something about the character, but they don't know it about themselves. And that can be a very powerful tool. So it's trying to sort of lever that out of them. Uh, And here's a good one. What is going to happen to this character a month after the end of the play? What's going to happen to them a year after the end of the play and what's going to happen to them 10 years after the end of the play and what, when and how does your character die? Again, it's just to get a sense of this character from their birth to their death. What's the meaning of their life? Because often a play with a character, the play is the moment of meaning in their life. It's the big turning point. Indeed, it might be the moment they die. That might be why you've picked that moment, but it's somehow it defines their life or it's the one thing that if you wrote their obituary, it would mention that moment. And so getting a sense of their entire sort of span of existence is quite useful. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is sort of connected to character a bit, is I suspect we're going to get, I want to sort of open it up as a discussion point, but it's about endings. Because people often say, how do you know when the play has ended? And I was sort of pondering that question and we'll discuss it in the group. Maybe we can report back next week. But I was trying to think if I answered that question, what would I say? And I sort of felt like it's the moment when the central question of the protagonist is answered in some way. And that ideally you want to keep that answer until the final moment of the play, or at least as, as late in the play as possible, because the audience all has a sense. If that, that question will probably be lurking in your play, and the moment it's in some way answered or resolved, or in a way sort of we know it's been addressed, is the moment we'll be going, oh, we, we'll know the play's over, even if the action on stage is still going. So you want, in a ruthless, formal way, you probably you would have that as like the last line of the play. Well, actually, most plays have a bit of a tail end after that moment just to, to get to the end. But it's worth thinking about because one director I know absolutely has a sense of that. And she she hates plays that go on any longer than when that question is answered. She's like, this is totally redundant. This this is everyone's bored. We don't need this last speech, this last moment or the light slowly fading. She just cut, you know. But dramaturgically, I think that's probably the closest I can get to an answer. But we'll discuss it and um, maybe report back. I have an impromptu question for you about character. Yeah. So you're talking there about exercises that you don't usually do and you usually find your characters through dialogue, but you've done two plays that are about real life people. So how was your approach different from when you were writing, say, Dr. Foster, which is a brand new character that only you wrote, to when you're making a protagonist of Donald Trump? I suppose the only thing with those real people is that they're, particularly because a lot of it, I think, comes through the way they speak and the nature of their actions, what a sense of their psychology and what drives them. And it's important that both those figures were very public figures. So what I'm looking at is the way they speak and their public actions on the record. And that's what I'm interested in. And I'm using that to get character in a sort of Shakespearean. And then the rest of it, I just fill in like, 
Like no one thinks that Shakespeare is writing the, the history plays are naturalistic depictions of exactly what those kings are like. It's more about what's the character that we need in order to tell the story of Richard III. So we know he murdered the princes in the tower. Well, who, who's that? You know, or Henry V, we know, you know, we need a hero king. Well, who is the character who will fulfill that? So he's filling in the gaps in order to find out the psychology of the person who did that thing. And so with Charles, it's like, you know, what's, I'm, I'm sort of using the writing of the play to fill in the sort of gaps of, the, I've never met him, I don't know what he's like, what, but I can see what he's like in public and I know the things he's done. So I'm filling in the gaps. And the same with Trump. And it's part of the joy of writing them is the sort of fact that on one hand, we know them really well from seeing them on our screens all the time. On the other hand, we don't know them at all. So there's a, there's a joy to, to, to sort of getting behind the curtain on that in terms of the writing. And then also in terms of stage characters, they're very performable in that way. You know, you, it's the same thing with an audience and exploring who these real people are. What I've never done is taken a real life person who is more private, I don't know, like a true crime or someone like that, I, because I feel like I need elbow room to find out who that character is and also for them to be a bit unknowable like I don't really know who Donald Trump is I don't really know who Charles is and I will never know and I quite like that in a, in a central character that there's something to be pursued whereas a sort of private real individual who was still alive I'd feel like well if you want to know who they are just go and talk to them or watch a documentary on them you know I don't feel there's a sort of the same sort of mystery for me and I like having being able to explore their character through the writing. Do you know what we haven't done today, Mike? What's that? We haven't mentioned Tony Kushner once. You just have. But now I am doing it, and I'm doing it to say that we had, uh, following your comment that we should have a little um, Tony Kushner doll in the office that doubles as our recording studio, Daniel wrote in to say that when we do get one, we should call it the Tony Kushner. Good. I like that. And Charlie wrote in to say we should call it the Tony Plushner. Ooh. Plushner. Well, if anyone is both a playwright and into knitting, then perhaps they would be good enough to uh, to get knitting and send us a uh, soft toy. A Tony Kushner. Tony Kushner. I wonder if there's an, already a knitting pattern online for that. Um, please do send us in your questions and comments to info at oldfirestation.org.uk. Our question today comes from Stephen. And Stephen asks, does a play have to be seen on stage for it to be worth writing? Or is it a valid art form as a piece of writing like a poem or a novel? There are two answers to that question, I think, which is another way of saying I'm not going to answer the question because I have two, I have two mindsets on it. So George Bernard Shaw, the out of fashion, turn of the century, Anglo-Irish playwright, used to write very, very long stage directions, almost like a novel at the beginning of the plays. And that was because there was a tradition then of more people would probably read the play than see it, or at least certainly as many, and they would get published and people would buy them like novels and they would either read them to themselves at home or they would in fact read from them at home with their family. You know, this was before, certainly before um, television and largely before the radio. So in that world, you could imagine, you know, he was writing for readers, really. He wasn't, he was writing for performance and they were performed, but he was very well aware that a lot of his audience would be reading them, not not right. So in that world, you go, well, that completely works. And then there's also um, Wallace Shawn, I think of in this context, who wrote a play called The Fever, which was designed originally to be performed in people's living rooms. So someone would stand up amongst 10 people and just perform this monologue. So it's still written for performance, but it's not written for to be performed in a theatre. So I suppose one could relate it a bit to 
poetry is originally an oral tradition. And when most poets would say that in order to really get the sense of a poem, it should be spoken out loud to hear the rhythm. And, and that even if you read it to yourself, you're sort of hearing it in your own head. And I feel the same is true with theatre, that although technically it's a blueprint for performance, I think I love reading plays. I love getting a cup of coffee and sit and read a play for an hour. They don't, they don't, most plays don't take more than an hour to read. And it's actually really fantastic. It's a, You can totally read a play as much as you can read a novel or poetry. It's just most people don't. And And I'm increasingly getting into the idea of finding other ways of plays being experienced, whether that's through readings in more private contexts or in communities, performing a play, whether it's a stage reading or an amateur group or a, I sort of feel like in a world where, as Katie, the, you know, just talking to Katie just then proves how many people are writing plays and are craving for live experience. And yet a theatre culture, which is suffering from lack of funding and not able to give opportunities to writers, maybe that we have to find other ways that we can experience plays, whether that's through reading them to ourselves, reading them in a group or in a sort of community context. It relates to the conversation we had a few weeks ago, I think, about the blurring of those lines. You know, if I um, I wrote a play for my village where I live and it was performed last weekend by the community there. And they were all brilliant. And it was a really fantastic experience for everybody. But also the company of actors and the people, all the people doing it really threw themselves into it. And it was, it was a really enriching experience, I think. But also it was a play with 15, 20 roles. And if that play was done professionally, it would be incredibly expensive and it would never happen. And yet all those people saw it and, and the play was heard, you know, over three nights. And I sort of feel like it felt absolutely as valid as a professional experience to me. So I think this is spinning off quite a bit from the question, but I think it is relevant to address the gap between the number of people who are writing plays and want to be a playwright and the professional opportunities to get your play on. That is a vast gap, isn't it? And I think that it really is important if we're encouraging people to write plays that we think about other ways that their work can be seen and heard and experienced. Thank you. How to Write a Play is hosted by Mike Bartlett and Alex Pope. Editing and music is by Hannah Gallardo Parsons and it's produced by the Old Fire Station, Oxford. Please support us by giving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.